Hello, my name is Andrew Pollard. Welcome to our podcast series, The Oxford Colloquy, bringing the facts, stories and people behind the science. Today on the podcast in our pandemic series, we're going to be talking to Dame Jenny Harries, who's the chief executive of the UK Health Security Agency, explaining the role of public health in the response to the pandemic and impact in the day-to-day work of the public health doctor here in the United Kingdom. My guest uh, on this podcast is Dame Jenny Harries, DBE, Chief Executive of the UK Health Security Agency and Deputy Chief Medical Officer between 2019 and 2021, today's top public health doctor in the UK. Jenny, you've uh, had a career in public health and you've been working uh, as a public health doctor and then um, as a, a senior official, both in government and at the, health, the UK Health Security Agency. And what inspired you to get into public health? Well, strangely, if I look back at my career now, this is never really where I intended to go. But the um, the decision behind it is always to try and improve the health system and improve health outcomes. Um, and I think for many people, that's what drives them towards a career in public health. So uh, I entered, uh, I went to medical school, uh, did usual sorts of junior uh, doctor posts, um, had a career break with family. Uh, but when I was uh, doing my medical degree, I integrated a pharmacology degree. So I came out of medical school with that. Um, and then when I was looking to go uh, into specialisms, I thought, do I enter the pharmaceutical industry? I was quite keen on uh, new uh, new products, how we could help uh, increase uh, life outcomes, um, or uh, was I going to take the medical skills and translate them into practical issues? So I think my career is based on translating good science and good evidence uh, into health outcomes for people in their communities. And that's really where the drive has come from. And for, to do medicine in the first place, is is that we were from a medical family or, or was that um, something which uh, came uh, when you were a teenager that you felt that you could contribute in that way? Um, so actually, Andy, you, you yourself may well remember we were at a meeting recently and you popped a slide up on the screen and uh, I recognised my father in it, uh, which I don't think you were aware of. So, uh, in fact, my father was a virologist and he was one of the um, consultants in the uh, original public health laboratory service uh, and, in fact, uh, worked on, I discovered, the first coronaviruses that were identified in the UK in using electron microscopy then. So somewhere in the background, uh, there is clearly a medical streak, although I'm the first person, first female in my family to go to university. Um, but he did his very level best to put me off, actually. Um, and I think it's because he recognised I, um, I, I quite liked the solving problems uh, issues. And you get to do in a big way and you get to do that with individual patients, which I loved. Uh, but uh, perhaps from where he was working on a lab bench, you didn't get to see it in a at a population level. Um, and so, uh, yes, there's a medical background there, uh, probably not an encouraging one to start with. But by the time I'd got to deputy chief medical officer, uh, I know he was very supportive. Uh, so so that was the rebellion um, in you that, uh, that led to doing medicine. Uh, some, something like that, I think, yes. Um, and uh, that that photo of your father that you mentioned, that was at the Common Cold Unit, if I recall. 
It, it was. So, I mean, my, my personal career was I, um, I I did broad public health. So I did public health training and then worked in communities. I trained in public health in Wales. Uh, I then moved over to England and was a, a director of public health, a joint director of public health, which meant I was working both with a local authority as a chief officer and with the health service uh, and then came through to be regional director of public health in the south. Um, and of course, actually, uh, not quite at the same time frame, but in the South region was the Common Cold Research Centre at Salisbury. Um, and that is, my father was uh, worked with David Tyrrell there, who's who was a very famous virologist, um, looking at the common cold. And it's where um, it used to be headlined in the newspaper, people went on holiday to catch cold. Uh, and they did a lot of work there, particularly uh, early studies on interferon uh, and whether that was a, a helpful way of trying to solve the problem of the common cold. Um, but yes, exactly. And he was doing what we call human challenge studies. Yes, and uh, an interesting link in that uh, Wendy Barclay, Professor Wendy Barclay from Imperial College is on one of our other podcasts, and she did some of her early um, work at the Salisbury Common Cold Units as a, a nice link uh, there. That's right, yes. So uh, uh, in your work as a public health doctor, uh, your initially, I assume, will have been working in the front line of investigating outbreaks, whether it's food poisoning or um, unexpected um, events that happened. And uh, you would then have continued that work um, through your career to then become the regional director of public health in the south of England. Is, is that uh, what happened? And then uh, once you were in that position, what, what sorts of things were you then dealing with? It, that's that's right, Andy. I think many people, because they've seen me uh, on the the COVID um, number ten briefings, for example, assume I'm a uh, an infectious disease specialist by background. But in fact, I was a general uh, public health physician, and so covered all what I call the the main elements of public health. So health improvement, so things like um, supporting uh, physical activity, healthy diet and nutrition, and, and then what we used to call healthcare public health, which is about health service planning and ensuring evidence-based practice amongst um, other clinical colleagues. Uh, all supported by good data and information. But the, the third main uh, plank of public health is, as you say, uh, managing um, external threats to health, including uh, infectious diseases, but actually also including things like um, chemical incidents or uh, radiation incidents. So you, you're dealing with those. Your remit as a director of public health is to uh, support and protect the population. Um, and so rather than when you perhaps go to see your GP and you have an individual patient to patient relationship uh, and they are there to help you and get the best health outcomes, as a director of public health, your, your patient, if you like, is a community population and then at the region obviously to support regional work and then I suppose the most significant uh, investigation I was involved with uh, both as regional director and working uh, with uh, Sir Paul Cosford was in the response to Novichok which was um, uh, uh, the um, poisoning event in Salisbury um, and you know a, a very unusual event uh, but one, nevertheless, which we have national plans to to cover all these sorts of different incidents in how we step up health protection responses across the country. So with, with Novichok, um, there, there was already a playbook, was there, about how to respond to what, what uh, appears to have been a deliberate um, poisoning of individuals, which obviously has a wider risk to public health? 
So what we have is not a specific, obviously not a specific response to um, to a, a poisoning in Salisbury. And that was clearly uh, unanticipated. But the point is, we have to be ready to respond at all times. And so what we have is uh, guidance around the different potential uh, Hazard, so even including things like actually hot weather. You'll see since the the country breached forty degree uh, summer heats last year, we uh, these are now very significant as health protection issues. So whether it be hot weather, whether it be um, a poisoning like that, whether it be uh, an infectious disease, a, a pandemic, there are what I would say are general preparedness plans, and they go right from uh, a local level response. So that would be a director of public health working with um, the UK HSA, UK Health Security Agency now and our specialist teams um, to manage that at a local level, right up to uh, the experience that we've just had with um, COVID-19 or supporting um, uh, people uh, working, for example, in the Foreign Office on something like Zika. So a very, very broad portfolio that you have to have able to respond to nerve agent attacks as well as uh, what the microbial world can throw at us and uh, Novichok was in 2018 um, but then the following year you became the deputy chief medical officer at the department of health and um, who asked you to do that how did that come about well i i uh, obviously applied for the job and there is there is an appointments process so for clarity that that is how you get the role so any interest in future deputy chief medical officers there there are job adverts out on occasion um but i think my experience working on those incidents um was really enlightening to understand uh, the political landscape, the civil service landscape, to see how you can plan and prepare for things strategically. And I think it's really important to note, Andy, although you know the UKHSA is um, is ready to go and has uh, operational arm working with directors of public health and their teams at a local level, actually uh, we, we don't deliver any of these things independently. So obviously very specialist resources required to respond um, to Novichok um, and, and equally we have to pull in our very uh, our experts like yourself for many uh, in academia and in research departments to coordinate a response so we get the very best information and evidence going in and then the best health protection outcomes going out. So you find yourself as Deputy Chief Medical Officer uh, when uh, the stories start to emerge uh, from China uh, end of 2019, early 2020 of a, a new pneumonia. Um, when did you first realise that there was going to have to be a major um, public health response, uh, sort of building on your background as a public health doctor? Um, so there is a little bit of a, um, a, a side joke, if you like, attached to my role as, as Deputy Chief Medical Officer, because uh, normally we have a Chief Medical Officer and then two deputies, one of whose role uh, is primarily focused on health protection, and that was uh, my colleague now, uh, Sir Jonathan Van Tam, um, and the other role is usually focused on the health improvement side of things, as I've said, sort of trying to support healthy lifestyles. And in fact, my role should have been uh, when I joined in 2019 to do that latter job. But uh, as you flagged, right at the end of 2019, uh, there started to be uh, noise coming through. We have an emerging infections unit to pick up uh, information across the system from a number of different sources uh, that there was uh, an outbreak of uh, an unusual respiratory virus 
uh, in China. Um, and uh, the more information that came through, and it was very limited to start with, the more it was clear it wasn't clear what it was going, what virus it was, uh, what the impact was going to be, uh, or how, to what degree it was was spreading. Um, and so I think uh, alarm bells were ringing very, very early on, and a lot of action was taken to try and understand uh, more about the virus and what was happening, but very clear uh, in the early, early weeks of 2020 uh, that there was a major problem uh, and that we needed to be very well prepared. But, uh, of course, there is always a lot of uncertainty at the beginning um, of a pandemic or an outbreak about whether it, it will turn into a pandemic. And certainly with coronaviruses, the last two false alarms we've had uh, with the original SARS-CoV-1 virus and then the MERS coronavirus, those have both been controlled by uh, relatively um, old-fashioned quarantine measures rather than the major interventions that were required for this pandemic. So at, at what point do you, did things start to, to switch a gear um, towards thinking about um, the, us being in a very different situation from those previous outbreaks? Um, so as I've mentioned, we, we have national instant emergency response plans that we get ready to step up. So one of the first things we do internally in the Health Security Agency now, but obviously wider government has control mechanisms, Department of Health, Cabinet Office, um, is, is to set up those systems where we can effectively uh, monitor and coordinate a response. So those were stepped up very early on. But from a pure health protection uh, issue, what you're looking for is to understand the virus. You're particularly keen to um, understand how uh, frequently it's uh, transmitting between uh, different individuals, which types of individuals. So, for example, early uh, we got uh, some sort of signal that said it was transmitting in older people but of course actually it depends how you count cases of infection and this was one of the difficulties i think with early records in in china which if i remember uh, were people who were admitted to hospital and of course what you don't do is pick up uh, the total instant rate of disease the total prevalence across the population uh, and get a clear picture of who the virus is uh, infecting uh, how severe it is, you're just getting a tip of the iceberg um, problem. And so it, it takes many uh, weeks to really understand the severity, uh, the speed of travel uh, of infection, uh, and to get a clear signal about what it is you need to have in place. But obviously, we uh, we didn't have cases in the UK until uh, a few months after the first cases were notified in in China. Uh, but it's very clear now as we look back with epidemiology and actually now able to look back at different samples genomically uh, that spread in, into Europe, for example, was quite early. And we saw that in the uh, in the wave in the uh, north of Italy as well. So you're looking to look at the to understand the characteristics of the virus. Number one, you're looking to be able to put in place some sort of response. And until you understand the virus, you have some uh, idea of its structure and how it might respond. It's quite difficult to know um, uh, how you might counter it. You need to be able to test it to start with. So you need to have uh, appropriate tests in place uh, and you need to start planning very, very early on to uh, uh, try and find some sort of antidote to a countermeasure, as we'd call it, uh, both in terms of a vaccine, which obviously the UK did very effectively, but also for uh, some people who are unable 
to respond to vaccine appropriately. Um, and for those who are seriously ill, you clearly want to scan through what products you might have already in your um, in your medicine box to, to actually counter the impacts. Um, and you also need to prepare the health service. And the degree to which all of that happens um, is really reliant on the severity of the of the virus. And you prepare for the worst to start with. And so you mentioned Sir Jonathan Van Tam, who was focusing on the vaccines in the Department of Health, and uh, Sir Chris Whitty, who was um, uh, the chief medical officer through the pandemic. So what was what was your responsibility specifically as the the other deputy chief medical officer? Um, so in fact, we we fortuitously, I think, during this pandemic. Uh, inadvertently ended up with a, a sort of dream team in chief medical officers at least that's what i'd like to think uh, in the office there so um as you say um my colleagues had very ex strong expertise in infectious disease and vaccine development and health protection uh, but in fact what i brought into the center of government and to the center of discussions was a particular appreciation of our local communities of how the health protection and public health system worked in order to uh, be sure that um suggestions that we might make would actually translate through effectively and support the public. Um, I've also uh, worked in commissioning, so understanding how to bring services on board um, and particular for some particular populations. So, for example, um, I chaired a, uh, a new SAGE subgroup that was set up uh, after the first wave of COVID um, to really look into the science behind uh, the dreadful impact that it had on uh, care home residents, uh, particularly, and then worked with the education department on schools uh, and on children, and also looked at some of the uh, working with other government departments for things like uh, understanding how we could safely open up some events. So things like um, special studies on uh, Wimbledon um, or uh, those sorts of things. Um, but gradually, uh, we, we had a sort of portfolio of work that we passed between each other uh, so that uh, I think we ended up with a coherent um, expertise sitting at the top uh, of uh, uh, of government in terms of advice to the government in terms of what they should uh, action should be being taken. So through all this period, um, particularly in uh, the the role that you had, there was intense uh, media scrutiny. You you and of course um, Jonathan Van Tam and Chris Whitty were very much in the media spotlight. What was your experience of that, and how did you cope with the pressure? Well, I was asked at very short notice the first time uh, I appeared uh, at number 10 because, um, in fact, I seem to remember our chief medical officer had had COVID himself at that point. And so, so when you say appear, you mean this was uh, doing the daily briefings that the government that, gave from right. number 10? That's yeah. right. Fairly early on. And um, I, I probably had two or three hours notice uh, to go and stand on that podium. And of course, um, I've been asked since, how does that feel? And the reality was that I think if you are a, a dedicated professional, you're really just focused on doing the right thing and getting the right outcomes in the same way that a, a surgeon might be focused on the patient in front of them when they do an operation. Actually, uh, all of our minds from chief medical officers office were very much focused on doing the day job, getting on with it, even though it was quite relentless at that time and very fast paced. So I didn't have time to think, uh, particularly. Um, I'd had some exposure to, you know, obviously responding to incidents in the media before. Um, and I saw it as actually both um, both a responsibility, but also an opportunity 
to ensure that a public health message came directly from a public health professional out to the public. Um, and I, I think that is important, that there was somebody there that the public could uh, hone in on who uh, who perhaps, and I, I hoped in my communication, um, could they could recognise that uh, I was understanding some of their position or indeed for other professionals working in the field who were also watching. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's, it was a huge responsibility, but because you're focused on delivery, um, that was the challenge ra rather than anxiety about delivering it. So uh, now uh, moving on from uh, the pandemic, you are uh, leading the UK Health Security Agency, formerly Public Health England, formerly the Health Protection Agency, formerly the Public Health Laboratory Service. So it's been reorganised multiple times over the last 20 years or so. Um, it, it, what, what, what is the reason for this uh, constant uh, renewal? And are, are we now in a better place? What I hope to bring in being the chief executive of the UK Health Security Agency is a complete step change in health protection. Um, and despite the hardships of the um, pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, I think it has opened up opportunities for innovation, particularly around vaccine development, new test development, that will allow us to actually deliver that. And I'm, I'm hoping we'll be a part of it. One of the problems I think previously, I, I used to have a saying when I was uh, training or in my early consultant years that said uh, uh, that if um, health protection was going well, it was very quiet, i.e. all the small outbreaks are around over 10,000 of them happening all the time across the UK each year that we respond to. People aren't aware of them because they're all being managed very successfully and only a few of them will pop up to the top of the media. And that health improvement is always very noisy because you're challenging policy to try and improve health outcomes. And of course, there's always a balance between uh, liberty and intervention to get the, the right position. But in fact, I've changed my view. I think for health protection, we should be much noisier about all the brilliant science that goes on in the background. And that is what has been called upon during this pandemic. So for example, if people hadn't been working uh, on uh, different vaccine platforms, prior to the pandemic, we wouldn't have uh, the opportunities and the speed of delivery that we have now. People had been working for a long time to get new products there and the pandemic meant that they became critical uh, parts of that response. Equally, um, I know uh, the uh, our team, it was the Public Health England team then, had been working on a panacea, a sort of broad test for coronavirus previously, in order that if there was a pandemic, uh, we would be able to have a test to start us off with until we were able to get a very specific one for the type of coronavirus that actually eventually came along. So all of this preparatory work needs to be understood and known. Um, and so my endeavour over the next sort of 12 to 18 months is to really go and sing the praises of our scientists, our um, statisticians, our modelers, uh, all the people who are working constantly uh, to be ready to deliver when an event like this happens. And and I think actually, you know, the, the COVID dashboard, which was part of the UKHSA's uh, delivery, it was uh, 
Joint Biosecurity Centre, who started that work, was uh, one of the most frequently visited websites uh, in the UK, certainly, and possibly around the world. Um, and we showed what you can do with data. It was helpful to support, for example, the public who were perhaps anxious about picking up a vaccine. They could see what the data was showing. They could see whether other people were going forward to it. They could see how many cases there were and what the risk was in their area. And it's that sort of step change uh, that I think we need to um, harness more frequently and have a direct transparent conversation uh, with the public. But but I think the other area of this is I've just come back with a couple of my team from the World Vaccine Congress, which is in, in the US. It's the biggest um, Congress for um, uh, pharmaceutical industry, plus uh, public health and government agencies. Um, and uh, what we're trying to do as we go forward is really harness what the vaccine task force did. That's now our, they're now inside the UKHSA, and we're trying to bottle, if you like, the approach that they took and the culture they applied, working with industry much farther ahead, so that if we do come across uh, new pathogens that we need to respond to. We 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 know what we have in line, and also that we can start to work to prepare new products, new vaccinations, new diagnostics for um, diseases that actually we don't currently treat or respond to. So, ten thousand incidents responded to every year by public health doctors. That would be a lot of media noise if all of those um, were um, promoted uh, very heavily, and they must. Uh, span from uh, chemical incidents through to uh, outbreaks of uh, food poisoning uh, from barbecues uh, to outbreaks of uh, diseases like diarrhea virus, norovirus in hospitals. So a huge um, variety of different incidents that that would involve. So, Jenny, uh, what do you do when you're not focusing on um, having the health of the public in your hands um, in your spare time uh, to to chill. Well, I I should I hope the public will feel reassured that actually I don't have much chilling time and I'm usually thinking about them. Um, but uh, what I do like to do is go uh, walking. Um, I've not been doing very much of that for the last few years. It can be extremely um, time consuming in the sense of uh, when you respond to an incident. Um, you want to ensure that all possible actions have been taken. And then even in the stepping down phase, you want to make sure that the lessons that have been learned from each incident uh, or uh, observed, uh, the opportunities there are to improve the system going forward are picked up and translated through into the next response. So it's a continuous learning process and it, it genuinely hasn't left uh, a huge amount of time uh, for, you know, for other things. But um, walking is my predominant one. I'm a huge park uh, run enthusiast as well um, uh, and so I'm trying to pick that up again a little bit more I'm a very slow park run enthusiast so. uh, perhaps I'll join you on one of those runs one day um, what, what what would you have done do you think if your father has succeeded in persuading you not to do medicine what, what, what do you think uh, your career might have looked like instead well, you are now unearthing my very peculiar past because in actual fact, when I went to medical school, I had studied Greek, Latin and ancient history for my A-levels. Um, and uh, uh, and in fact, my, um, my I'd planned to be an archaeologist and my um, classics teacher at school was very upset that I didn't apply to, to go and do classics. So possibly a, an archaeologist, but... Um, 
one of the things people often think, well, why did you go from one to the other? But actually, classics gives you a very logical training. It allows you to um, articulate problems in a very short um, sentence, for example. You have to be quite precise about it and, and you have to follow through logically to look at the endings of words and to try and translate. Um, and I think that has stood me in very good stead for looking at outbreaks and incidents and ensuring that you approach these things with a completely unbiased mind, always looking for the opportunities and the variation, uh, but being able to logically follow through where where the uh, evidence takes you. Dame Jenny Harris, would-be classicist, Defender of Public Health, thank you very much. Thank you. That was the Oxford Colloquy. Thanks for joining us in our podcast, bringing you the facts, stories and people behind the science. So you might be wondering, what is a colloquy? We've called this podcast series the Oxford Colloquy. Well, a colloquy is a discourse or a conversation, and hopefully you'll agree that that's what we've been having. 